Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 27. We are going to conclude this chapter today, hopefully, if we can get through all of the wonderful events of Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 to 66. Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 to 66. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. We'll start at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as we come to these verses in Matthew's gospel, the words of the old hymn come to mind. Lo, in the grave he lay. Jesus, my Savior. Because in these verses, which cover parts of two separate days, Jesus is placed in the tomb where he will lay until the third day. So all of the events that take place in these verses are events that took place as Jesus died and remained dead over these days. In terms of the timeline, Jesus had just yielded up his spirit meaning he died on that cross as he cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
and with it the shout of victory that should cause every one of us to be walking around praising the Lord every second of every day, it is finished. In our text this morning, Matthew will describe the events that took place first at the very moment of Christ's death when he actually yielded up his spirit. And we see three things, the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom, the quaking of the earth and splitting of the stones, and the resurrection of saints, of dead saints. Matthew will also record, secondly, events that took place soon after, as in like an hour, maybe an hour and a half after the death of Jesus, as Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks the Roman governor Pontius Pilate for the body, for Christ's body, in order to provide a proper burial. And third, we will see Matthew narrate events that took place the day after, the Saturday, the Sabbath day, as the chief priests and the Pharisees join hands to ask Pontius Pilate to secure the tomb. So we're going to be spending our time this morning looking at these three things. So first, the events that took place at the moment of Christ's death. The first being, as Jesus yielded up his spirit, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. We read this in verses 50 and 51. Look at it. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The significance of this tearing of this curtain cannot be overstated because the ripping of this curtain indicates the removal of a long-standing barrier between God and man. Notice where the curtain is. The curtain is in the temple, in the place where Israelites for thousands of years have gone to worship God. Now, just as a step back, there is some discussion as to which curtain this is referring to. Because in the temple, some believe that it is referring to what is known as the dividing wall. In Herod's temple complex, after he recreated or restored or rebuilt the temple during his days, in his days, the temple consisted of five separate courts, each one of them more exclusive than the next. And the largest court, so if the temple is right here, around the whole temple, there was something called the court of the Gentiles. That's where most of us would be allowed and no further. It was here where any non-Jew who believed in and worshipped the God of Israel could come to offer prayers in this God's house of prayer. It was a, there was a waist-high wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the actual temple itself. It was a small wall that was a dividing wall that, that showed you where Gentiles must stop and only Jews could proceed further. And posted at the entrance or posted on this small wall were signs, numerous signs that read, no foreigners allowed past this point on penalty of death, foreigners being Gentiles. It was a dividing wall of hostility. It was an obvious reminder to Gentile believers that you are not as special as us, the children of Israel. You are not as loved by God as the Jewish peoples are. Only we can approach God nearly and in a more close and special way than everybody else. So you Gentiles, you remain here on the outer rims of the temple 
watching from far off. There are some who think that the tearing of the temple curtain refers to the demolition of this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in their worship of God and in the inclusion of all people into the family of God and household of God by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, granted, the theological point is true. It is accurate. The principal fact is true that Christ's death has indeed brought us Gentiles near to God by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote this very thing to the Ephesian believers in chapter 2 of his letter to them in verses 12 to 14. He writes this, making the very point, saying, Remember that you, Gentiles, were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And listen, but now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It is a most blessed and glorious truth. It is one that we all hold dear that we Gentiles have been incorporated into the people of God, that by faith in the name of Christ we are adopted into the family of God. And as the Apostle Paul will go so far as to say in his letter to the Galatians, we are heirs to the promises that God made to Abraham. Amen and amen. These are great and precious promises that we can all cling to indeed. And while that's a true theological point, the curtain that is being referenced by Matthew here isn't the dividing wall of hostility. It is, the curtain that it is not the wall that separated the Gentiles' areas from the Jewish areas. This curtain that is torn in two when Jesus yields up his final breath reveals to us an even greater reality secured for everyone who believes because as Christ yielded up his spirit, after bearing our sins for us at the cross, the barrier that has been created by our sin, the very barrier that once estranged you, provided you believe here this morning, from the presence of God, has now been abolished for every single believer in Jesus Christ. The curtain referenced was this curtain that existed between a place in the temple called the Holy of Holies and everywhere else. Let me explain. Throughout Israel's history, the Lord had commanded them to build a house for himself where he would dwell in their midst, where his presence would be in their midst. At first, it was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable tent that was used by Israel as the place of worship where God would meet with the people during their wilderness wanderings. And in the tabernacle, there was a holy of holies, and no one could go in there except the high priest on one day of the year. Later on, Solomon constructed the temple in Jerusalem. There was the holy of holies in the temple in Jerusalem where no one but the high priest once a year could enter. And then after the destruction of the temple during the captivities, Herod rebuilt the temple. We call it the second temple. And in the second temple was the Holy of Holies, 
the holiest place in the temple where only one man, the high priest, could enter in one, at one time of the year. It was in this small inner room called the Holy of Holies. It was the most holy place in the temple. It was inaccessible to. It was forbidden to almost every single person in Israel. This room is where God himself would appear between the cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. This room was so holy, so sanctified, so off-limits to the average person that the Lord commanded that it be sectioned off and separated from every other room in the temple. We read it in Exodus chapter 26 where we see in the, these words, the Lord told Moses, who told the people who, made, who were making the temple elements, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil, listen to this, shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. This most holy place was separated from regular people by this veiled, this veil, this curtain. Why would the Lord do that? The Lord did it for the safety of his people. This room remained unvisited by all but one man and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The most important national holiday on Israel's calendar because people are sinners and because God is too perfectly holy to look upon sin and sinners, because we are defiled and the Lord's eyes are too pure to look on sin, should any Israelite have taken it upon him or herself to enter into this room in which God's holy presence resided among the people of Israel, listen, their lives would be forfeit as the Lord struck them dead immediately. Sinners, defiled sinners, cannot without an intercessor or a mediator approach a holy, a perfectly holy God without losing their lives. And the only person who could approach and enter this room was the high priest in Israel, again, once a year. And even then... It was only after a long, careful, scrupulous, painstaking, exacting, strict, detailed, and thoroughly demanding process of preparation and ceremonial cleansing. And if the high priest, during this time of preparing, missed anything, did anything out of order, forgot a single detail in the preparation, as soon as he entered the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the defilements of the people... He himself would be struck dead by the holy presence of a God that he was unprepared to meet. Tradition tells us that the people of Israel used to tie ropes around the high priest's waist and put bells on his ankles so that when he actually went into the place, they could, A, tell if he was struck dead because they'd hear the bells jingling as he fell to the ground, and B, actually get the body out of there because if they went in to get it, they would be killed. This was how difficult 
and restricted access to God had been up until the death of Jesus Christ. Access to God was in the days before our Lord Jesus Christ offered himself up for us, in the days before he bore our sins in his body on the cross. When Christ yielded up his spirit and the, the veil that separated mankind from access to the presence of God, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom by the Lord. It was a supernatural, miraculous tearing. And it symbolized this fact, the great obstacle and impediment that kept us from approaching God in his throne room has now been dealt with by the death of Jesus Christ. See, sin is humanity's greatest problem. And I want you to take this phrase seriously because it's easy to forget this in our relentless news cycles that are seeking to constantly turn your hearts away from recognizing that this is our big problem. Sin is our great problem. You watch enough news, you might think the economy is our great problem, or you might think political wars are our great problem, or you might think fires and floods are our great problems, but let me tell you this. The world could be at war tomorrow, and missiles could be flying all over the place, and fires could be raging, and heavenly bodies falling from the sky, and even so, the greatest problem in humanity is our sin before a holy God. Don't listen to the news and getting you all riled up about those things so that you forget this fact. This is why Jesus, at the end of his, this gospel here in Matthew, he doesn't say go into all the world and make sure that uh, the polit your politics are the ones that are in power. He says go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Because the biggest problem we face is our sin. If we are an unforgiven person, Approaching a holy God is your greatest problem. Not missiles, not politics, not floods, not fires, not anything. Your sin. And the devil is working overtime to make you forget that truth. But in Christ, as Christ yielded up his spirit, for everyone who turns to him, believes in his name, and repents of his or her sin, two things, this most amazing reality takes place. That Christ clothes you in his righteousness. Your sin is dealt with by him on the cross, and his righteousness is given to you so that when God looks at you, what does he see? He sees the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, you are forgiven and you can approach and enter into the presence of God boldly and freely because the curtain has been torn in two by the Lord Jesus Christ. You are positionally in the heavenlies. Your soul is positionally perfectly sanctified in the sight of God. And if that's true of you, that will begin to make waves in the way your life works here on earth as you progressively act in more holy manner as you grow in your obedience and imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a 
cherished and treasured reality. One that the writer of Hebrews seems to be busting to let every one of us know. And when he writes things like this in Hebrews 4, 16, let us, meaning those of us who believe in Jesus, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, they could never say anything like that. But because of Jesus' death, we can now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. And again, in Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22, he says this, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. Can you sense the excitement of the writer of Hebrews saying, everything has changed because of this Jesus. And all of this is symbolized by the tearing of the temple curtain at the moment our Savior yielded up His Spirit at the cross. And as we gather here this morning to praise and to ascribe all glory and honor to our God, you, yes, you, if you trust Christ as Savior this morning, you have been blessed with this most awesome privilege of drawing near to Him with confidence for help and mercy. You, child of God, can draw near to Him every minute of every day. And as you do, you can be confident that the Lord's arms are open wide to receive you, that His ears are attentive to your prayers, and His disposition is always one of willingness to help you and to dispense grace to you in times of trouble. Now, not only did the temple curtain tear in two, at the moment of Christ's death on the cross, Matthew continues in verse 51, and he tells us, the earth shook and the rocks were split. This also occurred in the moment when Christ yielded up his spirit. And the splitting of the rocks moves the picture of the torn curtain, which was in the deepest parts of the temple, out into the world, a symbolic picture for the nations. You see, the same Greek word is used here for splitting rocks and tearing of the curtain. The death of Christ has a creational significance in that not only are we who believe in Christ reconciled to God by the tearing of Christ's flesh on the cross, but creation itself is also being reconciled to God in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1.20. He said, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. See, God has for his people in times of old, revealed his shaking up of the order of things by miraculously and powerfully splitting aspects of creation. You remember it, right? A people once enslaved to the harsh and terrifying taskmaster of Egypt were brought safely through the Red Sea as the Lord did what to them? Split them. And now again, 
at the death of Christ, the order of things has been radically altered. It's been shaken up like the earth was shaken. And anyone, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is now delivered from not Egypt, but from an even worse and harsher taskmaster, sin and the tyranny of sin and the wages that sin pays out, which is death. This is all symbolically revealed in the fact that as Jesus breathes his last, the earth shakes and the rocks split. And along with the tearing of the temple curtain, along with the shaking of the earth and the splitting of the rocks, we also read in verses 52 and 53 that at the death of Jesus, the tombs were also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I want you to note the details here and note the order. The bodies of dead saints were raised, meaning their physical bodies were raised from the dead. And note, only the bodies of dead saints were resurrected. This was not some indiscriminate raising of any person in a tomb in Jerusalem in that day. This was the resurrection of many of God's holy ones. Which holy ones? Matthew doesn't tell us. Perhaps they were saints who died during the three years of Christ's earthly ministry, who then, after Jesus was raised, went into Jerusalem to proclaim the wonders of the kingdom of God to the people who live there. That could be it. Maybe these holy ones were the faithful believers of God who lived prior to the incarnation or the coming of Christ to earth, now raised to declare the truth of his identity and ministry to the nation of Israel. Could have been. Whoever they were, at the death of Jesus, their tombs were opened. At the death of Jesus, life returned to their mortal body. And it's interesting, right? Matthew is the only gospel writer to record this event. And seemingly, he does it in a quick and rather nonchalant way. Just so you know, tombs were opened, people were resurrected, they went into Jerusalem. As if to say, would you ex at the death of Jesus Christ, would you expect anything less than people being raised to life? After all, it's Christ who died, and his death brings life to all of his children. And as quickly as Matthew speaks to this monumental occurrence that many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, hear that again, many, see that word in there? Many, not just one, not just two, but many were raised, as quickly as Matthew tells us about this event, he just as quickly moves on from it, leaving us to wonder, right? What happened to all these saints? Did they live another decade? Did they live another full lifetime? Did they resume life as normal? Did they return home and say, hey, I'm back? We aren't told because such questions aren't the point. Instead, it's important to note what happened at Christ's death. And it's important to note that it happened at Christ's death. These saints were resurrected, even though, if you look at the text, it seems that they have waited until after the resurrection to actually go to Jerusalem and appear. The focal point here is the power of Christ's death. The picture is, in these resurrected saints, as the great Puritan pastor Jonathan Owen puts it, 
the death of death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. As God tells us in his letter to the Hebrews, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, likewise partook of the same things, meaning flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see the taste and the glimpse in these resurrected saints of this truth? At the death of Christ, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, and we are given a visual reminder or a visual symbolic gesture that that is the case as these resurrected saints exit the tombs with life in their bodies. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, asleep is another phrase for dead, another way of saying dead, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So as Christ breathed his last and as he yielded up his spirit, God here with these resurrected saints has provided for us a glimpse of Jesus' victory over death. God provides us with a physical picture of the magnificence of Christ and the fact that his death is the pathway to our life. By the death of Jesus, saints live. By his death, our future resurrection to eternal life is guaranteed. By his death, we live confidently in this world as those who don't need to fear death like the world does. But we face the prospect of our own death with the knowledge that by the death of Jesus, we will be raised up. If we die before Christ returns to gather up his church out of the world, we hope and we rejoice with this certain truth as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the dead in Christ will rise. Why? Because Jesus died. The death of Jesus is of such power, such importance, such wonder that it will be and is the subject of our songs before the throne of God on into eternity. As we read, for example, in Revelation chapter 5, as the four living creatures, along with the 24 elders, fell down before the glorified Christ, they sang these words, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And along with them, the text tells us in Revelation 5, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands also said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And while it is the death of Jesus that secures the life of the believer, and it secures our future resurrection from the dead, 
the resurrection of Jesus confirms this to be a fact. As Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our life is secured by the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus reveals to us the fact that we will be raised from the dead along with him. So these three events, the tearing of the curtain, the splitting of the rocks, and the resurrection of the holy ones, all took place at the moment when Christ breathed his last and yielded up his spirit. And if we take all the gospel accounts and we harmonize them, in the moment of his death, we also read of three groups and the impact that these events surrounding Christ's death had on them. In verse 54, we read about the centurion and the soldiers, about whom Matthew writes, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Remember, these were the very soldiers who only six hours earlier had scourged Jesus. Scourging is a particularly torturous and painful whipping of a condemned criminal. These were the same soldiers who slapped and spit on and mocked Jesus in a variety of ways, shaping a crown of thorns and pressing it on his head, putting a mock royal robe on him and putting a mock reed or scepter in his hands, and then grabbing that reed out of his hands and proceeding to beat him with it. These are the very same men who, for the purpose of humiliating Jesus, as he was fastened to the cross, went right in front of him and began gambling for his clothes as Jesus hung there and watched and prayed for them. These were the very men who, in 27 verse 36, sat down to keep watch over Jesus as he hung on the cross. It is these very men, now seeing the earthquake and the vigorous, loud, energetic cries of Christ from the cross, it says, they were filled with awe, verse 54. And the word here for awe, it doesn't mean like wonder, like whoa doesn't mean that at all. It speaks to fear. Some of your translations will say fright or terror or anxiety. And as the centurion sitting there took it all in, Luke tells us that he said, certainly this man was innocent. He now seems convinced of the very thing that everyone was doubting just a few hours earlier. You remember they were all saying, hey, hey, Jesus, if you are the son of God, come down. And now the centurion declares in our text, truly this was the Son of God. The soldiers to some degree now seem to recognize that they had spit on a special man. They had mocked a man that was innocent. They had beat a man that had some sort of connection to the divine. What this meant to a Roman idolater, we can't fully appreciate. It's hard to say. But they do know that Jesus was a special man and they now should be afraid. Luke writes about a second group and the impact of Christ's death on them, and that second group is the crowds. In Luke 23, 48, it says this, All the crowds that had been assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. 
The beating of the breast here points to the fact that they understood at this moment that there had been some sort of travesty of justice. And they were the instigators. And they might have returned home that day fearing some sort of reprisal from the divine, some sort of wrathful response from the Lord for their part in this wicked deed. But here we see something awesome about our God. Because while these people go home beating their breast, wondering if the Lord will bring about divine wrath upon them, what is it that the Lord actually sends to them? The very people who crucified Jesus, what does the Lord send to them? He sends to them apostles armed with the message of the gospel. It is to these very crowds that Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2 when he makes it clear, saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Twice in a matter of ten verses, Peter makes it clear, it was you who crucified Christ. And what greater sin, what more terrible sin is there than that? And on hearing this, many of these very people who went home that day beating their chests were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter, well, what should we do? Peter said, repent. And by the grace and the mercy of God, on that day, Acts tells us 3,000 people believed in the Lord. 3,000! And among these 3,000 were many of those who had shouted, away with this man, crucify him! Do you see the awesome mercy of your God. The very people who were pressuring Pilate to crucify Jesus were, by the grace of God, delivered even from that most heinous sin on that day. And listen to me, if they can be forgiven, who are you to say you can't? No one has committed a more vile and evil sin than those who saw to it that Jesus was put to death. And even they... Even those among their number, those who believed and repented of even that wicked deed, were saved and adopted into the family of God. And the the great pastor John Bunyan has a book called The Jerusalem Sinner, where he speaks about this very thing. It is a penetrating, insightful look at the mercies of God to even these Jerusalem sinners who were the ones who called out for the crucifixion of Jesus. And a third group impacted by the death of Jesus were the women. In verses 55 and 56, we read, Looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So the mother of the the apostle John and James is the, the third woman there, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And in this day, women weren't really considered any sort of political threat, and so they were allowed to remain close to Jesus as he was uh, on the cross, whereas 
Others might not have been allowed such close access. These women were the women who, during the life and ministry of Jesus, followed him and ministered to him, meaning they served and attended to his needs. They fed him. They supported him financially. As Luke records, during Christ's time, ministering and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he says in chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them, meaning Jesus and the twelve, out of their means, meaning financially. These women looked on. While all the disciples had fled the night before, only John showing his face in the hours leading up to Christ's death, these women, these women stayed and observed to the very end out of their great love for and affection for Christ who had done so much for them. They stayed. All of these, all of these events, all of these people were impacted in these moments as Christ yielded up his spirit on the cross. And now as Matthew continues with an account of the events that took place, he does so, he speaks to the hour, about an hour after Jesus died. When Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus in order to provide him with a proper burial. So he writes in verse 57, when it was evening, evening here meaning between 3 and 5 p.m. So an hour or so after Christ's death. We read in John that it was during that time when the soldiers came and they were going to break the feet of the criminals and Jesus had already died, so they pierced him with a spear and water and blood came out indicating that he had indeed died. And after Jesus died, we read that a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came who was also a disciple of Jesus. Now, this is an important development because seeing that all the disciples had fled or were standing far off, Who will ensure that Jesus is buried? How will the prophetic word of Isaiah that Christ's grave will be made with a rich man in his death be fulfilled? Enter Joseph, a name we haven't heard, this particular Joseph anyway, up to this point, an unknown disciple. John tells us that this man had been following Jesus secretly being up to this moment at least fearful of making a public profession of faith in Christ, perhaps because he was afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. Mark tells us that he was a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God. And in this moment, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Luke tells us that Joseph was a member of the council, meaning the religious leadership in Israel. He was a good and righteous man, and he had not consented to their decision and action, meaning he had not consented to the chief priest's plan and act to charge, to try, and to kill Jesus. And so in this moment, as the general mass of people had recently turned against Jesus and, and, or got, and had now gone home, Joseph took courage and he stepped forward. This secret disciple now publicly outs himself as a disciple. And it took great courage for this man to do so because if you think about it, he's a member of the very council that had delivered Jesus up to Pilate and he steps out now, he steps forward now when Jesus is dead. He steps forward when there seems to be no benefit to doing so. 
revealing himself to be this, this, a disciple of an executed man. He could have just kept it all silent and went about his merry way. But he hoped to honor Jesus with a proper burial as opposed to the unceremonious disposal of bodies on crosses that were regularly practiced. For condemned and crucified criminals like the, those on the cross on these days, they would usually be left out, either left on the cross to rot and be eaten by scavenging animals, or they would be thrown into some unmarked mass grave along with other criminals unworthy of the honor of remembrance. It's a Roman way of reminding the populace who was in charge. And here as Joseph stands, steps forward, and as Mark tells us, he took Jesus down from the cross and he wrapped Jesus in a linen shroud after Pilate confirmed that Jesus was dead. And in verses 58 to 60, we read, He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. It might be uh, surprising that Pilate would hand the body over to Joseph so easily, right? But as we've seen, Pilate has already revealed himself to be a man who makes decisions to appease the religious leaders. And so as Joseph approaches, himself being one of those religious leaders, and he requests the body of Jesus, and Pilate knowing that burial for the Jews is a very important thing, even if it's a Jewish criminal, as we read in Deuteronomy 21-23, for example, that if a condemned criminal is hanged on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. And so Joseph took the body, and Matthew intentionally uses the word body here. The body, to remind us that at this time Jesus is actually dead. And he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and John tells us that Nicodemus was also there. The man who had come to Jesus by night, way back in John chapter 3, who perhaps remembered what Jesus had told him. You remember in John 3, 14 and 15, when Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Maybe those words are ringing through the mind of Nicodemus, and so he comes, according to John 19, 39 and 40, bringing with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they, Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And Joseph laid Christ's body in a new unused tomb belonging to himself. The tomb was new, and that's important because it indicates there would be no mistaking who rose from the dead. The only one in the tomb and it ensured that all the glory for the resurrection of Jesus Christ went to the Lord because no one could say that Jesus rolled up against some old prophet's bones, someone like Elisha, and those bones brought him back to life. Remember those stories back in the Old Testament? And so as the body is put in the tomb, Joseph, verse 60, rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. For Joseph to do that, it was common to have a tremendously large stone rolled to block the entrance of the tomb for a couple of reasons. One, to protect it from animals who might desecrate the body. 
and two, to keep grave robbers from seeking to plunder the grave of the valuable aloes and myrrh that had been bound with Jesus in the linen cloth. And verse 60 tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. So they followed Joseph. Again, all the men are gone. Joseph is gone. text doesn't tell us that anyone's here at this moment. But these faithful women followed Jesus all the way to the tomb. And they sat there as they mourned Jesus. And then the third and final event recorded by Matthew, as Jesus' body remains in the grave, happened, verse 62, on the next day, that is, after the day of preparation. Meaning, all these events take place on the Sabbath. And not just any Sabbath, but the high... John tells us that it's a high day. It's a special Sabbath. This is the Passover Sabbath. On this day... In verse 62, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And as we will see, once again, these men are shown to be villainous hypocrites because they're going to violate their own Sabbath regulations on the Passover Sabbath. The most important of all Sabbaths in Israel's calendar, they're about to violate their own rules. And they somehow excuse themselves and justify their own disregard for the laws that they insist that everyone else follow. The very laws that they believe Jesus broke when he healed the man with the withered hand back in Matthew chapter 12. He did so on the Sabbath, and it was for that reason we read in chapter 12, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. The initial sense of wanting to destroy Jesus came because he violated their Sabbath laws, and here they are, violating their own Sabbath laws like abject hypocrites on the most important Sabbath in the calendar. Here they are showing their true colors once again. They set aside their own teaching in a last-ditch effort to keep the name of Jesus out of the mouths of people. Good luck with that. The chief priests and the Pharisees Usually theological enemies, they're now clasping hands in their common hatred of Jesus. And they stand together before Pilate and say in verse 63, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Interesting, isn't it? In their address to Pilate here, they call him sir. That's a term of respect and deference to this Roman ruler while they call their true and rightful king, King Jesus, that imposter. They say, while that imposter was still alive, meaning they too know and testify to the fact that Jesus is really dead in the tomb, and they reveal a rather stunning insight into Christ's teaching, one that not even the disciples themselves comprehended until after the resurrection, which makes me think these guys knew way more than they let on. Listen to what they said. They said, they ascribed to Jesus the teaching, after three days I will rise. Jesus had said this to the disciples clearly multiple times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, but they had only said it cryptically to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 when he told them about the sign of Jonah. And yet, they were able to piece together the fact that Jesus is claiming that I will rise after three days. They knew more than they let on, which is, ma- which is what makes their crimes here all the more reprehensible. 
In response to this claim of Christ, they said to Pilate, Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go in, go and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Let me just say, these religious leaders knew the disciples had scattered. And while they said to Pilate, Listen, someone might steal the body, so make sure the tomb is secure. These men were not afraid of a group of cowardly, uneducated, dull disciples suddenly rising up and gathering the courage and the desire and the know-how to steal a body and then conjure up some lie to spread among the people. Because, let's just say they had done that. All the religious leaders need to do is say, oh, he's risen from the dead, has he? Where? Where is he? No body? How convenient. And funny enough, it would be them who promote this lie of a stolen body after the resurrection. The very thing they don't want to happen, they start pushing. But stealing a body and saying, he's alive, he's alive, would prove nothing and could actually be quite easily dismissed as a lie. These religious leaders were not afraid of anyone actually stealing the body. These religious leaders, as we have seen time and time again, knew who Jesus was and rejected him anyway. These religious leaders were actually afraid that this man, this Jesus, this miracle-working Son of God, the man that they knew had come from God, as we read in John 3, might actually be raised from the dead. And to keep that from happening, and just listen to the the vileness of these men, to keep that from happening, they approach and enlist of the help of the very Roman nation, keeping them in subjection. They would rather send to Pilate or ask Pilate to send a guard of soldiers to the tomb to secure it than see Jesus, their rightful, national, true king, rise from the dead. You see how wicked and evil this generation was. See how committed these men were to world's, world's, worldly prestige. They would rather, even for all their words to the contrary, live a privileged life under Roman rule than make way for King Jesus to free them from Roman rule and himself ascend to the throne over Israel if it meant that they lost some of their prestige. Awful. Pilate responded positively to their request, saying, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. A guard of soldiers is 16 well-trained soldiers, and they sat there to make sure that nobody could get into the tomb to steal the body, but they also make sure that if the body were to rise, it could, he couldn't get out, which will prove to be a fool's errand in just a few hours. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the religious leaders, they traveled on the Sabbath, they secured the, the, the tomb, breaking their own Sabbath laws. And now, with three layers of protection in place, a stone, a seal, and a security force, the religious leaders now assume that they've addressed everything. They've covered their bases. And this should be the last that they hear about or from this man, Jesus of Nazareth. The problem has been solved. We can wipe our hands of this. But little do they know that they're completely wrong. His body might lay in the grave that day, but try as they might to prevent it, 
Jesus will rise from the dead. Jesus will prove that his sacrificial death was acceptable to the Father as he is vindicated and shown to be exactly who he claimed to be. Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, the only one in whom salvation is found. Jesus, the way. Jesus, the truth. Jesus, the life. Jesus, the one through whom no one comes to the Father. To God be the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we praise you and we thank you that even as you breathe your last, you are teaching us and revealing to us glorious truths about your power and your magnificence and your mercy and your grace and your compassion. We thank you that even in your death, prophecies are being fulfilled as unexpected men rise up, people who had been disciples the whole time and we didn't even know it. We thank you that even though these wicked men sought to ensure that your name would be taken out of the mouths and of the people of Israel, out of the mouths of the world, you are, so, you are too powerful and too wonderful to let anything like that happen. And while they sought to stifle all mention of your name, here we are, 2,000 years later, singing it loud and singing it proud and singing it joyfully, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All honor and praise to you. We pray all these things in your precious and holy and righteous name. Amen.